Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. On this episode, we're going to be discussing the uh, short, uh, the Witcher Saga short story, Shard of Ice. Uh, and I am joined again uh, by my wonderful friend, Joshua Rapier. Hello! Hello again, I'm back, and this time with an actual half-decent microphone. Uh, very, very true indeed. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're covering Shard of Ice, which uh, to me anyway is one of my favorites and I think is sort of up there with like the iconic short stories. Um, and so I just wanted to get your temperament on it because it is very different from uh, the short stories that uh, you have read thus far. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not adapting any short story. Um, it doesn't involve creepy monsters outside of that first little, you know, section. Um, so what's your take on A Shard of Ice? Absolutely fantastic. Really good. And I can say that for the whole sort of, uh, sort of Destiny collection. Like Last Wish, that was a solid collection book. It was good fantasy. But this one, it really kicked out of the park for me. I feel like the author really improved in every way regarding uh, thematic storytelling, prose. Uh, it's a fantastic deep dive into these characters. It really strips the layers from Geralt, turning him from the you know stoic Conan the Barbarian type character into this much more fascinating, vulnerable, insecure outsider to society. Uh, and while the first story in Soul of Destiny that was a it was a fun, good little romp with dragons and all that typical bard affair stuff. Uh, but this one, it's fantastic, real raw, uh, emotional stuff. I gotta love the story of. Uh, the pain of love, toxic self-proclaimed ownership, uh, this look and how Geralt's pride is his downfall, and this kind of story of self-destruction, brilliant stuff. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's kind of one that I go back to a lot, uh, and it's just a very personal story, um, and it, it, it's really a good deep dive into both Geralt and Gien and the relationship as a whole. Uh, and how it both works and doesn't work, and where it were, and what works well for the way it is presented here in the uh, collections. Obviously, uh, they were published in a slightly different order. Um, is that we're coming off of the Bounds of Reason, which is this very, you know, uh, fun romp, as you say, you know, with a dragon and uh, all this high fantasy stuff, and it, it's it's essentially a romance story. Uh, you know, and you have the dragon villain Tretmer telling them that they are made for each other, but nothing will come of it, and that's the inherent tragedy. But you have them sort of the 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 point of bounds of reason was they can't live without each other, and yet they can't live with each other, kind of thing. And so we get to see that other half here, where they're trying to make it work, but there's just something there that's missing. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of, uh, raw emotions that are going in there, a bunch of insecurities, a bunch of, uh, inability to really talk about their vulnerabilities. Uh, they're most vulnerable with each other, and that makes them uncomfortable. At the same time, it makes them comfortable. It's a, it's a world of contradictions, and, uh, it, it's just an amazing short story, uh, in my opinion. Probably one of the best out of the bunch, and certainly one of the best out of this collection. Um, so, I think to uh, really hone in on uh, what, what makes, for me anyway, this uh, short story tick is to um, sort of ask you, what, what is your thought on the Yen and Geralt's relationship um, you know, uh, having experienced it through three stories, and I know you've read something more already, so you've experienced that bit. We haven't gotten into the novels yet, but um, in the short stories anyway, how is you? What is your perception of the relationship and how they sort of ebb and flow through each other? It's very hard for me to pin down personally, but uh, it's certainly very interesting how complex and, as I say, contradictory it is. You have these two very strong, uh, stubborn people with their own outlook at life. They deeply care for each other, but at the same time, they're kind of unwilling to admit each other because they're worried, oh, what if they don't say it back? Mm. You know, what if I'm just a, a flight of curious fancy for them? Uh, and you just want to like shout at them, no, it, this is real. You two genuinely care for each other, but it's just a 
a doomed romance kind of stuck in this eternal loop, as it were. I mean, that's the sense of the game at the moment. I don't know how the main books proceed with it, but uh, what I'm getting with these short stories, you know, they fall in love, they break up, they find each other again. And as you find out in this story, there's a, a bit more in between, you know, regarding Yennefer. Maybe there's uh, Gelt's not the only man in her life, which makes things even more fucked up for him. Uh, and I mean, vice versa as well. Hmm. Um, because uh, uh, in some of the other short stories, Geralt slept around. Um, and uh, so, like, there's, there's this implication for them that sex isn't um sort of sacred to them and especially for yen she sees it as a tool and a tool to be used it's just another thing in her sort of tool shed to get what she needs out of someone uh and so their their love for each other is so strong that they're almost blinded by it that they don't they're not able to see what uh, how everybody they, they they sort of do little things for each other that uh, imply that they care and imply um uh, sort of a domesticity and uh and comfort and vulnerability but because they're so blinded by the the, the, the sort of they, they got love blinders on effectively they can't see it so like uh you know uh yen doing her hair she has no reason to do it, but she knows that Geralt likes it when she does her hair. Or, like, when Geralt can't say I love you, uh, and his explanation is that a word, it's just a word, it can't convey how I really feel. Mm. Uh, that, basically, they're all, they're, they're both sort of stuck in this area of we love each other, but we can't really express it. And they're doing small, itty-bitty, minor things that would convey it if they weren't blinded to their own uh, feelings, I guess. Mm. And for me, what makes the, the the middle scene of the story where they just barely opened up to each other more interesting is... Uh, I'm going to talk more about Istrid later, because, oh boy, do I have a lot to say about him. But I feel like <laughs> the tragedy of that scene is you get a sense Istred really messed with Geralt's head and Geralt is kind of parodying the words Istred told him. Uh, and he's saying all this stuff to Yennefer about how my words don't mean anything. I am but a witcher. I don't have any true emotions. And it's because you get the sense what Istred said was really a cold slap to the face and that messed with his head. And Yennefer kind of knows that. She, she can tell Istred is behind it. And it's really preventing them from properly connecting with each other. Uh, it just makes it all the more tragic, really. Mm -hmm. And just, like, the way I've always read this story is that she had a Kestrel already made. Mm. Um, she had already chosen, I think. Um, she was going to give Istrid the, crest, uh, the, the Kestrel. And then Geralt refused to say, I love you. Uh, and Geralt in his stupid, stubborn, foolish head, thinks he's doing the right thing. In actual fact, he caused himself to lose her. Mm. That it was, it's ultimately all his fault. That he refused to admit the truth of it. Hence the, the theme, truth is a shard of ice. Um, and he just... He, he he sort of just played into what Istrid said, but there's also this this inherent thing about Geralt that I brought up in previous short stories uh, that you were not on, but also I kind of brought it up uh, in Grain of Truth, if memory serves. Geralt wraps himself up in a comfort blanket. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that with this book, in particular yeah. with A Little Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. He is He is incredibly insecure. Um, he's incredibly vulnerable, and he doesn't like that that's part of him, and he doesn't understand how to process it. I, I, I made mention, I believe, in Grain of Truth that he's an incredibly intelligent man, but his emotional intelligence is not very good. Um, he's uncomfortable with dealing with other people when he's confronted with heavy emotions. He doesn't know how to process things correctly, and he plays into the classic sort of um 
the the trap that a lot of people with mental illnesses such as depression or just introverted people do which is you put on a mask uh and you play that part using that mask to hide from having to actually deal with anything so he wraps himself up in this wonderful comfort blanket that says i'm a witcher i kill monsters i have no emotions i don't care about other people uh i'm here to get paid and go that's it uh and that comfort blanket is essentially his downfall in so many ways there's so many things i can talk about in the novels where he puts on this comfort blanket and it causes him more problems than it solves but even in this short story you could it costs him yen if he had just said i love you and actually admitted it he would have not had to go through what he had to go through but instead instead of properly processing the emotions properly dealing what's going on in his head he went for the safe bet the safe bet that says i'm a witcher i kill monsters uh and i think there's so much to be mined there and, and, and sukowski will uh look into his facade as we go throughout the the saga but i think it's it's really interesting uh that basically Istrid sort of insulting him uh in, in getting inside his head uh when he goes into he in there's that that scene with yen like he said that where they they're getting close to admitting it and then it all falls apart that basically he put on that comfort blanket uh and he he basically uh and this actually comes in the plain little sacrifice when dandelion actually calls him out on it uh that he thinks he's an outsider he wants to believe a hundred percent certainty i do not belong here i'm an outsider i don't uh, i shouldn't be a human i'm not a human blah 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 and if you look at it he's just an ordinary guy mm. uh and he and he doesn't want to process those emotions and so he just ends up parroting what other people tell him uh you know the uh, uh when, when istrid is going on and on about him being a mutant he just repeats that right back to yen and, and yen even says do not call yourself that i hate it when you call yourself that because she can see the true Geralt, but Geralt can't see himself uh and i think that's an interesting character trait for a character especially the main protagonist or one of the main protagonists anyway uh, at least the main protagonist of the short stories, because we haven't gotten to Siri yet, um, to have a character who is inherently flawed, but he can't admit his flaws to himself. And so he has to first open up and understand his flaws before he can overcome them. And and that's a that's an interesting uh, note to go into, especially for like a fantasy protagonist uh, who, on the outside, looks like your standard, as you said, Conan the Barbarian, you know, muscly tough guy. Uh, there's actually something deeper in there. For me personally, I read Geralt as um, having. Uh, some sort of mental illness, uh, I think in particular depression, uh, especially in, when we get to uh, Lady of the Lake. There's so many signs of classic severe depression in there. Um, but even here, you can see it. Um, but you texted me uh, not too long ago about an interesting reading uh, about Geralt and being on the spectrum of autism. So mm -hmm. could you elaborate on that? Sure thing. So before I continue, I wish to clarify that while I am myself on the spectrum, that does not necessarily make me the best articulating it or being able to relate to everyone, every neurodivergent, as it's a very different experience for each one. And I encourage people to do their own research with valid sources. And while I don't think it's necessarily a deliberate intent on the author's part to have Geralt and the witches be neurodivergent and decoded, I really can't help but notice some uh, interesting similarities that hit home for me, like regarding the way witches are viewed in this series, uh, especially in regards of how Istred uh, treats Geralt like this subhuman and disregards his feelings. And, you know, it's constantly talked over and over how witches are unfeeling killing machines. Mm -hmm. But we know, you know, if you read the story, you know, you know that's bullshit. Geralt feels and 
as you're saying, sometimes he hates that about himself. You know, he pretends he doesn't because in his head, that's his blanket. It makes things easier if he is what everyone says he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and Istred's whole... I was going to say this earlier, uh, but I really want to punch Istred. Like, <laughs> God, he is just a prick. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of aggravating people in this series, but he really takes the cake. Just constantly having an answer for everything Geralt says, disregarding his feelings, because in his head, a witcher surely can't have one. And that just hits home for me, because I haven't experienced this myself, but I've seen it online, and people I know have talked about it, of their feelings being disregarded because they're on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's, there's a bit uh, where uh, Istrid basically is saying, you have no right to this, and blah, blah. Mm. And Geralt just snaps, and he says, enough! Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, like, I'm not on the spectrum. I only know a handful of people that are on the spectrum. So I am by no means like, uh, an expert or, uh, anything like that. But the moment you pointed that out, I did a reread and I was like, yeah, I can see what he's talking about in that scene in particular, that, that moment just went, yeah, I see what he's talking about. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Like he, he, it's interesting because I've seen people on online forums like Reddit and Twitter and stuff discuss The Witcher, and if they're talking more than surface level, uh, because you know we got we got the games, so it's usually talking about the games, or you know it's talking about the TV show now, and it's usually about how hot Henry Cavill is. Awesome. Yeah. Um, if people start talking about the characters, and in particular the book version of the characters. I actually see a lot of people bring up um, not neurodivergency, as you were saying, but at least mental illness uh, and uh, and how mental illness is portrayed in uh, The Witcher. And in those forms, some people have actually brought up the potential for Geralt to be on the spectrum. You're not the first one to notice that, so I think that is... Even though I doubt Sapkowski was thinking of it, I think that is a very interesting read. And, you know, Death of the Author, blah, blah, blah. I don't fully support Death of the Author. I think there's a mix there. But even if it was unintentional, there is there's an interesting avenue to explore there. Mm. And I think Henry Cavill really helps with that uh, idea that he might possibly, you know, not necessarily be fully autistic, but I think there is that kind of, Maybe not deliberate, but there's a sense of coding to him in the way he has the this kind of deliberate flat performance, but there's still like emotion bubbling under the surface, especially in uh, the opening of season two when he finds out Yennefer's dead. You can really see Henry Cavill's just facial expressions. He's trying to hold himself together, not have an outburst. Uh, and I thought that was a really fantastic performance on his part. I think he yeah. really understands, especially in season two, I think he's got he portrays it better, and well, how I'm understanding the books. Mm. I I absolutely agree. Uh, when we last recorded, season two was not out, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I may mention that I'm not the biggest fan of Cavill as Geralt because, you know, that sort of grunting and the hmm fuck and you know that all stuff. I wasn't really into that. That's not Geralt to me. Season two comes around. And while I have many problems with other characters and many problems with the plot and how it makes no sense and how they can't even bother, they, they, they can't even adapt the books from here on out. They're fully original content at this point um, and nothing can line up. I still think that out of all of the crap that season two was, Cavill was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and he not only he not only took, and we know this for a fact, because they started filming season two uh, only like a month, like it was January 2020, after season one had aired. As such, they had already had season two written before season one aired. We knew that also. Uh, and so um, they couldn't take in any of the criticisms. Then COVID happened. And production got halted. Uh, and Cavill, uh, th- this is something talked about in the press junket. Cavill uh, basically requested more lines. Uh, he was like, um, I'm reading a bunch of criticism. People think I'm too silent. 
Uh, they think Geralt should be more philosophical. Let's bring that in. Let's try and add some more of that. So they they re redid some of the scenes with him to add more dialogue for Geralt, and uh, Havel is able to eat that up and sort of uh, spit out an amazing performance that that show doesn't deserve. That show doesn't deserve mm. that good of a performance. You know, oh, there's just so many small moments in that season where I finally see Book Geralt on screen, and as much as the story around him does not make any sense and can't line up with the books, at least I got someone in the acting seat who looked at Geralt and understood him the way I understand him, uh, and really gets it. You know? Yeah, I think he's the real hero of the series. Like, learning about all this behind-the-scenes stuff, about the changes he's pushing to, you know, the directors and writers who should be doing their jobs instead he's doing it for them. Mm. Uh, I give him massive props to that. Every time I learned more about Henry Cavill, when it's about Superman or The Witcher, he always seems so passionate about giving uh, the, this true portrayal of the characters, even though the directors seem to be sabotaging it. It's <laughs> bizarre. He keeps finding himself in these situations, but I massively respect him for, for having yeah. this passion and under understanding of it mm -hmm. and uh i i've never doubted his acting chops i remember when he was first announced i was like okay that could be an interesting choice because i've seen him in other things outside of superman i know that like the pop culture stuff is like oh it's superman uh but like i'd seen him in the tutors i had seen him in uh the band from uncle so i knew he had acting chops and then season one came out and i wasn't particularly happy with his performance then season two and i'm like yes that's Geralt, you know, get rid of everyone else, maybe keep some of the cast, especially Henry, and let's start from scratch. <laughs> you know. Yeah, reboot after two series. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, like uh, as you were talking about, like, that opening in season one, even though they cut his conversation with death, they they, they have him confront Tissaia, uh, and that, that, that scene where he finds out that everybody thinks Yen is dead and he just that's book girl where he can barely contain himself just pure mm. dadness and he's about to well up and cry but he's you know he's in front of this very powerful mage who knows nothing about him in on this battlefield and he's got a child to look after he has to reserve his emotions and so he's holding it in the best he can uh and i was like that's book girl there we go. Uh, and that, that was, you know, that's opening five minutes. So, you know, I was, I was suddenly was happier. Certainly. Um, there's, there's a lot of dimensions to Geralt that, uh, I know we talked about a little bit in Granted Truth that some people pick up on, some people do not. And the, the autism reading that you're, you're talking about is, is another layer, uh, to this, uh, hypothetical onion. Excuse my Shrek parallel. Uh, um, that uh, he is Geralt, and there's a lot to be mined there. Um, and I think that the games, because they have to input player choice, because they're RPGs, they make Geralt a little bit more flat than he normally is. Mm -hmm. And that has caused the perception of him to be the the pop culture perception of who Geralt is to be very different from the character that we see here in this short story or the rest of the books of this very vulnerable man who is insecure and is hiding behind a comfort blanket and i think probably for marketability i bet that's why henry cavill played the character the way he did in season 1 don't necessarily agree with that but it is probably from a marketing standpoint, the, the, the good choice. Um, and so uh, seeing a more accurate Geralt on screen was nice, and see, as much as they didn't adapt this short story at all, um, <laughs> you know, with two lines between him and Istrid in the actual season, uh, <clears throat> you know, hinting at this short story, it was nice to see this Geralt on screen. Um, you were talking about um sort of how much you wanted to punch history absolutely yeah yeah 
one of my questions is regarding mage, uh, the, the culture of mages in The Witcher. This is the first short story that you've been on where we can actually really discuss mages as a whole. Okay. Uh, you, you've, you've encountered several mages throughout the various short stories, but this is the first one featuring one that you've been on. And I gave my thoughts uh, on a couple of the short stories, especially The Last Wish. Um, but... Um, out of all the mages we've seen so far, all of them are incredibly prideful, incredibly arrogant, incredibly decadent, and believe they are so superior to everyone else, it can be rather annoying. Um, and so, what is your take on that culture of almost decadent superiority about them? Something I found interesting, uh, Istred, and to, a, to an extent mages, are in a way kind of an opposite of Geralt and witches in that society seemed to love mages. You know, the town of Shard of Ice in particular seems to love Istred to the point where the mayor's like to Geralt, please do not kill him. We'll give you all the money you want. Just please run away. Don't kill this guy. We need him. Whereas with witches, society knows they need them, but they keep spitting on them. They keep treating them like shit. And I found that a rather interesting parallel, especially when Geralt meets Istred and they talk about how all, all the magic rituals Istred does, like with virtue, uh, virgin blood and all that, is just shit. It's just for show. Yeah. It has no practical value. But he does it because it's like, oh, it'll make the rabble think it's genuine. Because if I show them how it's really done, they're like, oh, well, we don't need you. So it's rather interesting how witches are more blunt, to the point. They're not flashy. They just get to it. Whereas mages, from I can tell, are more arrogant. They love to hype up themselves with illusions mm -hmm. uh, and misdirects. So I found that a rather interesting parallel. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but that's what I'm kind of singing at the moment. Um, I would say that it's intentional because we're going to get more into mage culture as the books go on, and there's a big major event involving that later. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I think that is definitely an intentional parallel because the thing with mages is that essentially they are uh, upper class. Uh, I think it's the best way to explain it. They go to the best universities. They get the best education. Uh, they also get these nifty powers from that education. And then they can use that to influence kings and queens and di dictate the flow of... of uh, uh, politics and uh, economy um, and everything there within and they basically they are their own they are almost separated from uh, the rest of people they are their own subclass but within that they are above everyone else not only do they feel like they're above everyone else but everybody treats them like they're above everyone else uh, and I think that's an interesting economy uh, because, you know, you, you have, uh, in this sort of quasi-medieval world, uh, you have the peasants, you have the worksmen, you have the nobles, and then somewhere in between the nobles and the kings, perhaps, or the, between the, the, you know, the, the workmen and the nobles, perhaps even a little bit higher, we have the mages, and then below the peasants we have the witchers. Um, and they're both necessary in this world, this magical world full of horrors and monsters, etc. Um, but each of them goes about tackling how they're needed in different ways. Um, and I think the, uh, the, the best way to look at this is sort of a, um, I, I think there's an interesting sort of class commentary here of witchers or sort of like, um that uh that that necessary labor that the 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 necessary jobs to get society working mm. um, so like, like the magic garbage men yeah exactly yeah, they're necessary but whenever people think about them they're like oh you don't want that job that's a mm -hmm. nasty job and magicians and mages in general like they're useful and they have lots of stuff that they can contribute to society but you know, if you look at a look at the medieval world in real life, of course we didn't have mages. So um, we know that kings can make decisions without mages and and stuff like that. So it's sort of this weird dichotomy where it's 
unskilled labor versus skilled labor, I guess is the best way to explain it. How uh, some things are uh, are viewed as necessary by society and some things are viewed as not necessary by society. But the discrepancies there is that the the necessary stuff is looked down upon, whereas the unnecessary stuff is looked upon favorably. Mm, that is a very interesting way to put it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, just the, the, the culture of decadence around mages, I think, uh, contributes to the way they, they act. Uh, Yin puts on this uh, facade of being this ice queen, uh, uh, you know, very authoritative, confident woman. But when you see her at her most vulnerable, which is usually when she is with uh, Geralt or in the later bits with Ciri in the novels, uh we see a much different Yen. We see a Yen who is incredibly vulnerable, incredibly afraid of her position in life, who fought and gave everything of herself to get where she is, and knowing that it could leave her at any moment in time. Uh, and so she is desperately clinging on. And we saw this in Bounds of Reason when, uh, like, uh, you know, the, the, the bridge scene where uh, Geralt's trying to haul them up and he's like, cast a spell, something. Uh, and she's like, I can handle it myself. Uh, and it, it's basically just this entire thing of she is, she's in a position where she knows at any time she can be kicked out of this higher class that she's part of. And so she is desperately trying to cling on. Uh, with everything she's got. And then you have someone like Istrid, who is so full of himself, and there is no vulnerability there. He is just... he, he He's perfectly happy to continue to be an archaeologist and experimental things and people to leave him alone. And he enjoys, you know, uh, as he talks with Geralt and you pointed out, the, uh, the, the spells, the ingredients... Uh, how if people were, if knew that you didn't need virgin's blood or whatever, they could attempt to do it themselves. So instead, they they sort of lie and say that it requires all these extra, really impossible to get ingredients so that it makes them seem more important, it makes them seem more necessary. Yeah, I'd for business if anyone can do it. There's mm. definitely a real world element there. Mm-hmm. And, uh... There is also, like, uh, within the culture of, uh, of uh, mages, there's also the, the, they actually talk about this, um, one of the previous short stories, uh, that mages created monsters, or at least created some of them. Some of them came from the conjunction, but some of them were manufactured by mages. And then mages created witchers. Uh, it was a uh, it was a road with no return where that's mentioned. Um, so there's this this implication of supply and demand. They manufacture the the virus and then they sell the cure. Um, and uh, Sapkowski has a finance degree and he was an accountant. Uh, so I bet all of this sort of capitalism allegory and class divide and uh, economic standing of witchers and mages was all intentional, simply based on his background as a finance major. There's, um, I think it's Season of Storms, the prequel novel, will actually lean very heavy into uh, this uh, with uh, an, a, a sort of uh, a, a mage research facility uh, being... Uh, sort of guarded from consequences of their experiments simply because it is for the greater good mm. uh and uh in how like uh for instance uh there is a character uh who created the immortality serum because you know mages have very long lifespans uh he created an immortality serum and he thinks the uh that the uh, that everybody is now immortal because he can't leave his castle, uh, but the mages took it for themselves and used it for themselves and never gave it to anyone else. Uh, and so there's this entire implication of uh, even when trying to do good in a system that is corrupt, you can't, uh, and that inevitably it will be taken and used and abused by someone else. 
Uh, and I think that's a very interesting sort of way to go down. It also fits in with his uh, degree. So, uh, moving on from the mage stuff, I want to get your opinion on the sort of, in that scene between Istrid and Geralt, there is this overwhelming sense of ownership mm. of women are to be owned by the man, my girl, my woman, etc. That kind of thing. Uh, and they, they're they basically having a verbal pissing contest with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and it always comes down to the, you know, that other swords, as it were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, she slept with me while she slept with me, and, uh, and she's mine. I proposed to her, blah, blah, blah. And the idea of toxic masculinity... Uh, and sort of how that pervades throughout. Uh, Grain of Truth also had a lot to talk about in Toxic Masculinity, and we brought that up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, I wanted to get your read on on how Sukowski presents Toxic Masculinity and, over, and ownership over women in a relationship by the man, uh, how that sort of plays into it because this is written in the 80s in Poland uh and uh in you know Soviet controlled Poland too so um to say that they had wonderful in uh, uh progressive views on gender is uh to be uh factually incorrect so uh you know they're he is saying some stuff with this that well we understandably in the 21st century go yeah of course that's horrible to think about um probably wasn't as much on people's minds as it as it is now when he was writing this so what's your take on him talking about that and sort of uh what he's saying about that that's a good one what's well, interesting to me because Istred, in a way, isn't this full-on evil guy it's not like he's got mm -hmm. some grand mass plan to conquest but as you say he's got the wrong idea of how to go about uh his relationship with Yennefer you know he's in a way a fairly realistic portrayal for a man who has this blunt honest sincerity about him that's just sadly pointed the totally wrong way where he's like oh well I've known Yennefer the longest it makes sense for us to be together because I can support her we're both mages um and in his eyes Geralt can't do any of the that any of those things and you know, in a, I like to think Geralt is in like Istred uh, initially, but as Istred's argument keeps going on and he keeps shooting down Geralt's argument, Geralt kind of gets drawn into that toxic, you know, as you say, mm -hmm. pissing contest, where it's like, well, my rights are greater because uh, last night she slept with me, and then Istred, you know, does the ultimate 180. It's like, well, she slept with me this morning, so, and that's when Geralt really fucking loses it. He's like, fuck this, I'm leaving, it's just like, go to hell, and it's sad that it boils out to, that, to the end, in the end, it's all about they don't consider what she wants at first, it's, well, mm -hmm. Gerald does say that, he's like, well, she she hasn't accepted the offer, so maybe think about that, but Istred keeps keeps drag dragging him into his well of, uh, of hatred, you know, so, of ownership, as it were. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, as time goes on, you know, after their argument, you know, and Yellow's argument, have the creation of second Kestrel, he's in that dark, self-destructive pit where, like, he loves her, but he can't say it. Uh, he's fear he fears uh, she doesn't return the same feelings. And then he goes on that self-destructive binge with those Thief and Cicada, you know. And then by the end, when he, he meets Istred again, Istred's, or he finds out Istred's in that same self-destruction pit because he's, you know, he he's got the Kestrel. He he found out Yennefer doesn't want want him either. He he he's not going to use magic to fight Geralt. He's just going to use a sword, which we can guess he's never lifted anything like that in his life because he's mm -hmm. a magic one percenter who's bullshitting <laughs> himself for life. And I love that Geralt. He's the bigger man. He realizes what's going on, and he's like, I'm not going to be dragged into this. Uh, I'm out. If you want to kill yourself, do it yourself, which is, you know, a great callback to what uh, that thief said earlier. Yeah. And I, I, I thought that was a really well-crafted moment 
of yeah. Geralt's civilization, and he's running off to the castle. He knows what he's going to say. He knows he's lost her, but he, I guess, he just wants the truth. He wants to, for Yennefer's sake, I guess, to open it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even then, like, Istred knows he's got the declination from her of the proposal, but he just won't accept it because he's he's going on about, oh, I'll chase to the ends of the earth. It's just you and me, Geralt. The other men don't matter, and he just can't see the bigger picture. He can't see Yennefer's point of view. And I appreciate that while Geralt isn't perfect in this story, you know, he definitely fucked up in how he chose to treat Yennefer in getting and letting Istred get inside his head. It's great that in this moment, he took the right decision to just move on from this toxic pit that Istred seems so obsessed with creating between the three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- one thing that I think is interesting about the, 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 the talking about ownership type thing is that no one really asks Yen fully what her mm-hmm. plan is, or no one gives her the agency. It's just... Uh, Istrid and Geralt having a pissing contest over her and never asking her, what's your true feelings on this situation? Uh, she talks about that she's thinking about accepting her, his proposal, but it's clear from her, uh, the way the way she talks about it, is that for her, it is a matter of political convenience. Mm. Um, and uh, sh- she never once says you know, you won't be able to be with me anymore, Geralt. Uh, she even goes on a tirade about how if she had wanted him gone, she could have done 20 billion different things to get him to go away. Mm. Uh, from teleporting him to the ass end of the earth, or to simply say, farewell, it's been nice. Yeah, which is, in a way, what Geralt did to her the first time they broke up. You know, mm-hmm. just fucked off in Vernaberg. Mm-hmm. So, it's not like he's perfect in this situation, but at the same time, uh, she could have communicated better in this story because when they arrived to that town, she's already got the castle, so it's like, you know, she's there to meet him, to say no, uh, to break up with him, but then he proposes to her, that makes things complicated. And mm-hmm. things could have gone possibly simpler if she just told Geralt in the first place, hey, uh, this is what I have with this guy, I want to end it. Um, and maybe they could have just opened up better to each other oh, yeah. it could all been avoided but that's the tragic beauty of the story is that they can't that they they fail to do that that first step and mm. it gets to the point where they're too prideful to, to backtrack from it mm. uh, and this feeds into one of the other short stories of a relationship is to us a two-way street that it's a give and a take it requires sacrifice uh and the thing about Geralt and Yen is that they don't want to be vulnerable um, and you have a woman who, uh, was disabled, uh, you know, she was a hunchback, and she fought to get where she is now, and she's not gonna give up any of that power because it, it you know, it means something to her. She, you know, as she said, to become a magician, I gave up everything I had. Um, and, uh, and for, in, in the books anyway... She's referring to the fact that uh, magic atrophies uh, parts of your body, which included her reproductive uh, organs, which means she can't have a child. Um, And so she sacrificed everything she had to get where she is now. And you have a man who is so afraid of admitting his own faults and admitting his own feelings wraps himself up in his comfort blanket and basically has suffers abuse every day because of who and what he is uh, and can't really do anything about it and so you have two people who basically can't be vulnerable they refuse to be vulnerable and in a relationship you have to be uh, you have to be vulnerable, you have to be willing to listen to the other, you have to be willing to compromise, and you have to be willing to stop becoming your own self and become, you know, a united front. The symbolism of marriage, uh, you know, is two souls becoming one. Uh, and that's something that Geralt and Yin just aren't capable of this moment of doing. Uh, and that... That inherently is the tragedy of the story, is that 
if they had admitted their feelings, none of this would have happened. And if anybody had actually asked Yin, none of this would have happened. If she was willing to open up, none of this would have happened. But of course, you know, they can't. And so it does happen. And I think it's interesting that when he refuses to say, I love you, she makes the second kestrel. Uh, and then she leaves and yeah. she's gone. And she basically, the, the entire implication there is none of you had the right to choose for me and you were forcing me into a corner. And so I chose neither. Um, and there's this, this idea of, of, uh, uh, a woman's agency uh, in a relationship and how uh, that toxic masculinity and that sense of ownership deprives them of the ability to choose. Uh, and a woman's right to choose is something that is talked about a lot in this series, if you couldn't already tell, <laughs> uh, um, and is a major driving point behind series storyline so much. Uh, but... Um, but we also saw it in uh, some of the other stories from last collection. We see it in some of the stories here. Uh, I mean, Calanthe and something more says uh, a woman's right to choose is sacred. Mm. Uh, um, so like that, there's... And by the way, modern-day Poland still uh, outlaws abortion. Just pointing that out there. So... Um, Sapkowski is spouting some very radical views for the time and for his country. Good on him. Uh, the mm -hmm. more I learn about this guy, the more fascinated I become and realize just, you know, if this is all deliberate, just how well crafted he is with, with all these elements. So mm -hmm. good for him. This is fantastic mm -hmm. stuff. This is why I love doing this series with you because each time I go in like thinking, okay, I've read the book. I think I know what to expect. And then you give me more fascinating nuggets of information that make me recontextualize it. Uh, and it's great fun. I love doing this. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I said, you're welcome on any time, and even when we get into the novels, if you want, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much set in stone for like the chapter by chapter. So if you read the novels and you see anything that looks interesting in one of the chapters, mm -hmm. let me know, and you can hop right on. And if I cover something else in the future that looks interesting, feel free. Hell, I'm, I'm, I'm even willing to. Uh, do a, a a redux of uh of one of my Babylon Five episodes if you end up watching B Five and you want to chat about that because goodness knows I love that series so much so that was good yeah um my only other question for you um is she had a Kestrel when she came in I posited my idea that she is there to um uh, say goodbye to Istrid and choose Carol. Um, yeah, same. That's how I view it. Okay. I think like the proposal Istrid gave messed up the plans. Like she had to mm. think about it further, and in that time, Geralt and Istrid met each other, and that just fucked things up even more. Yeah. So, in a way, she, she should have just sent the birds. You know, she didn't <laughs> have to go to the town. She should have just sent the bird. It would have been so much simpler. That's like breaking up with someone over text, <laughs> in <laughs> in the modern lingo. Um. So like that. That's understandable on her part because it is kind of hard to do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I was just joking. It's yeah. I got the story's going for. But yeah, I was actually going to ask you who, uh, if you thought that the Kestrel, if she was waiting for one of them to make a decision, or if she was, if she had already made that decision, for sure she already arrived. So it, it, it's interesting to note that you uh, agree with my reading, which is she already made that decision long, long before. Um, and then the proposal just kind of fucked with her plans and she had to sort things out and it only got worse from there. So do you have any, uh, questions for me? Well, regarding two Kestrels, there is that bit where she's like, um, I need both. I was one, I was wrong to think one would suffice. So I do think it was intentional that she was going to choose Geralt, but I suppose she had some lingering doubts. And then when all this blew out, she realized yeah, this is inevitable. If Geralt mm -hmm. is going to be kind of it, virtually the same as Istred at this point, I need two Kestrels. Um, mm -hmm. But regarding my own questions, we did touch briefly upon how Istred was done in the Netflix series. And the thing is, so I'd watched season one of 
Netflix and then I read the books and then when I watched season two, it was only halfway through that I realized that, oh, this guy who I've known from season one is meant to be Istred from the books. I did yeah. not catch on to that because he seems so very much different. Mm-hmm. So did you have a, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because you said in the past that it's one of your favorite books on, you know, I, I assume you read the casting list when the show was announced to find out which character will be mm-hmm. in it and the actors yes. and all that. So going in, you know who this was, Estrid. Uh, what were your thoughts on, on his portrayal? When he was cast, I was interested because I knew they were going to do Yin's backstory. That was that was something that was talked about way before casting happened. Everybody knew uh, the the showrunner was very in uh, talking about it that they were going to take her uh, her backstory that is sort of fed to us throughout the books uh, and move it to the beginning uh, and expand on it. And they cast Istrid, and they cast a rather young guy for him. And so I was like, ah, okay. Uh, they're going to have him be part of her backstory, which makes sense. I'm like, okay, I can deal with that. And then the show came out, and uh, he's very different. He's much more of an archaeologist. They lean into that aspect of him. Um, he doesn't at all care about uh, the politics of the mages. He finds it rather boring and uninteresting. Uh, and he's being used as a pawn by some of the people of Banard uh, in season one, and he and he kind of just fucks off and goes to you know visit his ruins and just sort of ignore everyone else. Um, and they they portray him as much more of a sympathetic character uh, in the show. Uh, and obviously, Istred only shows up in this short story. He never shows up again. So, um, like, there is things they could do much like Stregobor where they took Stregobor and they've expanded his role beyond the lesser evil and that can either work great or be awful depending on how they do it I have a very strong feeling of where they're going with him um uh based on book four time of contempt there's a character in there that acts very much like their version of Stregobor so I'm thinking that's where they're going to have him go, and I'm not sure how to feel about that yet. As far as yeah. Istrid, I honestly don't know what they plan on doing with him. He's just kind of there. Yeah, and as you said, him and Geralt do meet, and they have like two lines that are vaguely similar to the story, mm-hmm. but then nothing. There's no real you know, antagonism between them. So it's just like, well, okay, why then? Mm-hmm. I remember everybody was speculating that Shard of Ice was going to be in there because we knew uh, that the actor who played uh, Istrid, whose name is escaping me at the moment, Henry Cavill, uh, were spotted on set together. Mm. Uh, So everybody was like, Shard of Ice, Shard of Ice, yes, yes, yes. And then in the trailer, we saw uh, the scene where Geralt meets Istrid uh, and he's casting a spell and we're like, yes, Shard of Ice, Shard of Ice, and nope. Uh, they lied to us. Yeah, uh, that it, it it's all about their own original plot about monoliths, which is not at all from the books. It's their original content. Um, and I suppose that makes sense because he's an archaeologist, and since they're inserting this random shit that has nothing to do with the novels, and it it it, it falls into archaeology, so that's a good way to fit him in. But outside of that, he doesn't really do much. Uh, there's there's he hates politics. He tries to ignore it. He loves Yen. Yen, from the way sh- the show presents it, he's more of a convenience for her. And she has a soft spot for what he did for her when she was younger, but she doesn't really feel much for him anymore. And uh, so there's no interesting sort of dichotomy there. Uh, with the, 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 the pissing contest that we've seen here that could have transported over. Uh, and then he goes and he, and he hires um, uh, Codringer and Finn, which is something Geralt does in the books. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Let's see where this goes. And then he goes and he talks to the elves at the end and tells them that uh, that he's figured out that series can occur. And you're like, okay... I have no idea what they're doing with the character or where they're going. At this point, he is fully their own original character 
as with the majority of that show. Uh, and they're so far off the books at this point, they can go anywhere. And I, I can't tell you where they're going. Outside of vague stuff I bet they're going to do. Mm. Um, like, I guarantee they'll do the Thanid stuff, which I know means nothing to you because you haven't gone to that point, but it will mean nope. something when you when you get there. They, okay. they, they've name-dropped the Korath Desert, like, five times, so I guarantee they're gonna do that scene with Siri. Once again, that means nothing to you yet. Uh, um, and stuff like that. But, um, so outside of, like, moments, handful of moments from the books, they're so far off course, they can do anything they want, and they are doing anything they want, so... I honestly don't have much of a feeling for uh, Shoei Istrid because he's just kind of there. He, he, there's nothing interesting that I find about him. Mm. I think the actor is good. Yeah. Do you wish the show did adapt that story, like have an episode based on it? Or do you think uh, we dodged a bullet in that sense? Because given a track record, maybe they could have taken it in a, a very wrong direction. Um, Mixed bag. So, mm. yes, I think... It's sad that they didn't, uh, because this is one of my favorite show stories, so obviously I'm a bit biased, I want to see it on screen, but I have seen it on screen in the Hexer. Uh, is, is that, that show has 20 billion problems, and I have some small quibbles, but I think they, uh, with that episode, but for the most part, they did show device really nice. Um, and I think it could make a really fun and heartbreaking episode of television. Um, but the thing is, is this show isn't paced like this. Yeah. This is an action show. To have a, an, you know, an hour-long episode in which people chat and get really angry with each other and then don't fight is not something that this show really understands. I mean, it contrived a way for Geralt to fight a monster every episode this season. Um... So, yeah, like, uh, even Claudia, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, has actually shown up on this podcast, and I do a retrospective with her on The Witcher as we've been going through, uh, and we just finished, and we're going to do some addendums here soon, that um, she really loved season one. She even thought season one was better than the books. I don't at all agree with her, but she's entitled to her opinion, and I'm glad that she got an enjoyment out of that season that I did not. Season two rolls around and suddenly she's on my side. She's like, oh, this is bad. Um, so um, they, it's clear that they are in one of the reasons she said that it's so bad is that it is, she said that it's clear that they are making a show that is afraid to be conceived as slow. Mm -hmm. um, like the, 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 the showrunner went on Twitter and explained that they created that entire Leshy plotline in Caramoran because they didn't want to have several episodes of just Geralt and Ciri uh, in Caramoran getting to know each other and training. They said it would be too boring, so we had to get, create something. And Claudia said, that's, that, that's very much modern Hollywood thinking, that that would be conceived as slow. Because she's like, I would pay tons of money just to see several episodes of Geralt and Ciri getting to know each other in training. I was like, mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Because that's the, not only is that the way it is in the books, but it's also a father and daughter getting accustomed to each other who, you know, an adopted father um, and in uh, a, a teenage child, there's an interesting dynamic to explore there um, that can be relatable to real life people. Uh, real-life adopted parents of teenage children. And they don't do that because we gotta have some action. We gotta we gotta go kill a monster. CGI monster. Mm. And so, with this short story, I guarantee they would have expanded the Zoogle in, in, in the garbage. Um, and uh, probably had Geralt and Istrid actually fight. And it just would go against the grain of what this story is about. Mm. Um, and as much as I want to see this on screen, and I think Henry Cavill could act the living hell out of this, and Anna Tarolcha, who plays Yen, she's given god-awful material on that show. She's a talented actress. If she was actually given this material, she could also act the hell out of it. 
Um, there is so much potential, but also I know that they probably wouldn't do this story justice. So it's a mixed bag. I want to see it, but I'm kind of glad they didn't, so I don't have to endure the pain. Yeah, that's fair. I, it definitely wouldn't work in the context uh, the show has now. Oh, yeah. They've kind of gone past that point regarding uh, Geralt and Yennefer's relationship. Yeah. Well, it, show-wise, it's at a very weird place now. I'm not sure what to think of, <laughs> of their dynamic in the show. But let's save that discussion for another time, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> again, like you said, I think this... I love the story a lot. I think it would be fantastic to see it uh, adapted to... To, uh, on the on the screen, but not for this show. Maybe like a few decades down the line, maybe there'll be another Witcher show or movie or something. And I hope they can do it justice there. But I, it would not work in in the show now as it stands. Mm, yeah, I was I was afraid of this back in season one when they didn't adapt it. I I was like, they're they're heading into the main saga at this point. How can they fit Shroud of Ice in there? And I and I was thinking about it, and there's. There, there's a moment in the books where Geralt and Yen meet again after being apart for a while uh, in book four. And I was like, they could add Shard of Ice there, maybe. Maybe that would work. Not sure, but I think it could be possible. And then they went in an opposite direction where they're not even bothering anymore with adapting. So they're, they're off in their own little la-la land. So it's like, God, if I know, they're already together again. They already have, you know, Siri and Yen did something completely out of character this season. So God, God, if I know how they're going to even bother adapting this, if they are at all. But if they're not, what was the point of making Istrid a character? You know, um, it, it's just such a odd deal. Like, if you want to expand characters from the short stories that don't appear in the main saga, that's fine and dandy i don't care uh but if you're going to take a character from a short story and then not bother adapting it then then what was the point you know did you have any other questions just one more um so as you mentioned earlier this is the only story istred is in do mm -hmm. you think the series would have worked if he was more of a regular character like more of a foil to to Geralt, you know, you still see him kind of chase yennefer across the world or do you think it's best that he was just a one-off character uh the way the story unfolds, I don't think there would be any place for him that would feel organic. Mm -hmm. Um, the only place I could think of is Thanid, which once again means nothing to you because you haven't got there yet. Uh, but um, I can't wait till I do read the series and I'm like, oh, so this is what he was talking about. Just get like retroactive excitement because um, in that section of the main books. Dora Gary from Bounds of Reason shows back up. Uh, he's one of the few characters from the uh, uh, the short stories that aren't the main cast that show back up. Uh, and it's only for a brief scene, but it, 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 it was nice to see him again. So I think Istrid could have been fit in there. I Actually, yeah, it would fit really well. Uh, granted, Thanet is all politics, and Istrid uh, doesn't seem like He's really into politics, at least in this version. He doesn't seem like he really cares, and then in the show, he definitely doesn't care. Um, but um, there, there's a scene at Thanid where um, Yen sort of puts Geralt on display as her trophy husband. Uh, and I think there could have been a fun interaction there. Um between Istrid and Geralt and Istrid and Yen. But at, at the end of the day, he he didn't show up ever again, and I'm not going to complain because I like the story we got. So um, there was potential, but yeah, like I, I, I can take it or leave it. Um, the, only, the only character that I've always been sad never showed up again was villain Tretmurth, the dragon. Yeah. Uh, there's such a interesting dichotomy there of a um uh of a dragon who pretends to be human uh you know with a uh with a uh you know monster hunter who pretends to not have any feelings um there's an interesting dichotomy to explore there and he's he's a voice of reason type character like Naneki 
who was able to get at the heart of Geralt Yen and really expose their vulnerabilities in a way they weren't willing to admit to themselves. Um, and he does show up in a short story that is not canonical and takes place after the books. Okay, interesting. Yeah, there is a short story called Something Ends, Something Begins, which I will be covering after I finish The Lady of the Lake uh, and before I go to Season of Storms, which was uh, written before the books, but explicitly takes place after and is an alternate ending um, and was a wedding present to one of his friends. Pekowski wrote it just as a one-off wedding present. It was never meant to see the light of day. It eventually did. It doesn't have a, a full English translation. You have to read it fan translation, much like Road with No Return. Uh, and it's non-canonical, because it, it will make sense when you read it why it can't be canonical. Okay, very interesting. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil, because maybe you know, based on, because the games spoil it, but just in case, I'm not going to say anything. Um... And uh, that's the only other time Villain Trent Mirth ever showed up again. And I think it would have been interesting to see him again. Um, but characters from short stories that show up that aren't main cast, like Geralt, Siri, Yen, and Dandelion. Dorigiri shows up again. Daneki has a major part to play. Uh, Iola shows up again. Um, I could be wrong. There could be, like, one-off mentions. Oh, uh... Yurga's farm shows up again. They 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 get killed. I think that's everyone. I could be wrong. Um, there's some offhanded remarks about some characters that I could be forgetting. Uh, but for the most part, as I as I mentioned before, uh, I know at least on my solo episodes. I'm not sure with you. It wasn't intentional to be a series until much 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 later. Uh, you know, he never intended for this to take off. Uh, and that shows in some of the planning that some of the stuff, only the later short stories, really start uh, moving us towards a place, towards the novels. For the most part, they're separate entities because they were never intended to be connected in the first place. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, I'm good for now, thank you. Alrighty. Well, thank you again for joining me. And uh, it's always a pleasure, and you're welcome back anytime. I think the next one that you're going to be on is A Little Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Very much looking forward to that one. That was a fantastic story, yeah. uh, and in a way, it kind of it's kind of good we're doing both of these ones because I kind of see them uh, very much back to back yep. uh, in terms of continuing the story off you know off the breakup as it were. Yeah, and if you remember, um, like you on, uh, I think it was Edge of the World. You asked how I would adapt things, and I gave you a vague answer, uh, and because I wasn't sure, and then I thought about it for several weeks, and then I texted it to you. Um, a little sacrifice. Uh, it comes after Shard of Ice because of the of Geralt's hypocrisy. It gets on full display uh, in a little sacrifice, so it works out quite well there. But uh, I uh, shall see you guys next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Josh, again for joining me. Uh, and see you next time. Bye. Bye.